This is the My Dark Path podcast. To anyone with an appetite for history, the city of Prague is a feast for the eyes. Everywhere I've been in the capital of this modern-day Czech Republic, there are visible reminders of stories that stretch back over 1,000 years. Prague Castle, the largest ancient castle in the world, saw construction start in the 9th century. Within its walls, the masterpiece of Gothic architecture known as St. Vitus Cathedral had its foundation stone laid by King John of Bohemia in 1344, and it wasn't officially completed until 1929, almost 600 years later. Compared with the other major cities of Europe, Prague's historic architecture survived World War II mostly unscathed, and along its streets, you can see influences from the Baroque period all the way back to the Holy Roman Empire. But when I looked east from the castle along the Vltava River, I saw something astonishing even amid the boundless variety of Prague. A massive oval structure over 130 feet long sat atop a sleek modern building of glass and concrete. At a distance, the two shapes looked so wrong, so unusual, that my immediate thought was that something had crash-landed into this building. But I was fairly certain that if something had crashed, I would have heard about it. Nevertheless, the combination of the known and unknown created intrigue and a desire to learn more. So I started walking, and after an hour, I arrived at this unusual building. Its mysterious rooftop structure is called the Gulliver Airship. It's not a real airship, but an auditorium with seating for 100, accessible via the roof of the Docks Contemporary Arts Center. The center's director described the airship as, quote, a dream of 12-year-old boys. The museum hoped the shape might evoke some of the wonder and optimism of the heyday of airships in the early 20th century. So I paid my fee and went inside and wandered through the galleries of modern art but the real attraction to me was a photo exhibit of the history of airships. One black and white picture especially stood out to me, an image of a giant cylinder hovering over Zurich, Switzerland. The photo presented a strange contrast, this otherworldly technology looming over an ancient city. It reminded me of the purported photos of alien craft swarming around Roswell, New Mexico, but this airship was real glistening in broad daylight over the city in 1911. What did it feel like to see a sight like that at the dawn of the 20th century? The world is full of mysteries where our knowledge just barely illuminates a problem, if at all. To see an airship in the early 1900s was to see the dawn of a new age of technology, but the experience also changed how one saw the world and its future. Standing in the exhibit, pondering this photo, I wondered, how do people respond to disruptions? How do they react to the unknown? Does it create wonder or terror, and why? When we think of airships, we usually think of two things. Either we picture the Goodyear blimp hovering over a sporting event, or we think of the catastrophic explosion of the Hindenburg in 1937. But when I saw the Gulliver airship, this audacious attempt to reclaim some of the old spirit of this invention, I was hooked. Suddenly, I had to know more of the story, not just about the invention of the technology, but how its triumphs and disasters illuminated the human condition.
Hi, this is M.F. Thomas, the creator and host of My Dark Path. I'm a futurist, author, and a lifelong fan of strange stories from the dark corners of history, science, and the paranormal. I grew up enthralled by exciting, forbidden knowledge that waited behind the events we learned about in school. My first novel, Seen by Moonlight, told the science fiction story that intersected with the real history of the Nazi rocketry program in World War II and its ambitions to reach space. And these days, as my work takes me around the world, I always make time to get off the traditional tourist map and find a destination that's even more exciting, at least to me. What's unique about my dark path? Every topic, every destination is a place I've explored in person. This podcast isn't for you if you'd prefer a retelling of a Wikipedia article. Instead, we'll walk down dark paths exploring and discovering together. In this first season, we'll explore the remnants of secret aerospace labs in Western Europe, haunted hotels in Asia, UFO encounters in the USA. Plus, I'll cover the artifacts from seances found in Paris's Museum of Magic, and we'll trace how counterfeit watches are made and sold in Shanghai. In short, if you geek out over stories from these shadowy edges of history, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. But we'll also think about the human condition. When something unknown intrudes into our well-organized, well-understood reality, how do we as humans think? How do we feel? How do we respond? Is it with wonder and the desire to learn more? or with terror and a desire to flee or fight. Welcome, and thanks for coming along. To see content related to every episode, visit MyDarkPath.com. Plus, you should register for a twice-monthly drawing for materials and books from my own personal cabinet of curiosities. And please, reach out via email. Contact me at explore at MyDarkPath.com. I'd love to hear from you. And if that photo of the airship over Zurich in 1911 sounds interesting, make sure you listen to the end of the episode, and I'll tell you about an opportunity to get a framed copy for free. Part 1 By the time humanity was ready to fly, we had already been dreaming about it for centuries. Ancient Greeks told the tale of Icarus and the wings of feathers and wax made by his father Daedalus. In the 3rd century BC, Alexander the Great reported seeing a flying craft shaped like a silver shield. Thousands of his soldiers reported the same strange vision. It's one of the first documented UFO sightings. In the 3rd century AD, there are records of the Chinese experimenting with hot air lanterns to send signals in the sky. Over a thousand years later, Leonardo da Vinci sketched ideas for flying machines that used the same principles as modern helicopters. Thoughtfully, as he was doing this, he also sketched a prototype for a parachute. But it wasn't until 1783 that a series of technological advances first took people into the skies. And it wasn't the Chinese or the Greeks or an Italian genius of the Renaissance that got us there. Nope. It was two French brothers, one an inventor, and one a businessman. We're not talking about airships yet, but just as different species in the animal kingdom evolve from a common ancestor and then diversify, these first inventions are the ancestors of the airship, 
but branched off in different directions as they became more specialized. What the Montgolfier brothers, Joseph Michael and Jacques Etienne invented was the hot air balloon. Their theory was that burning smoke contained a special gas that had the power to generate lift, if only it could be harnessed. In 1782, they attached a small box to a primitive cloth envelope or crown, and when it caught the rising smoke, it lifted off the ground. The brothers were astounded seeing their experiments succeed, at least until seconds later when their balloon collided with the roof of their workshop. Now, their underlying science was wrong. There is no magic special gas contained in burning smoke, but they'd stumbled upon a true principle that made everything that came after possible. The idea that hot air creates buoyancy. And for the first time in history, the idea of humans taking to the sky wasn't a myth or a dream sketched in a genius's notebook. It was a scientifically proven concept. It only took a year for the Montgolfier brothers to advance their invention so far that they could test it with living passengers. In September of 1783, a hot air balloon containing a sheep, a duck, and a rooster rose up 1,500 feet in the air and flew across the skies of France for eight minutes before landing two miles away. Later, it's reported, they even sent up a giraffe. And just one month later, on the 19th of October, the Montgolfier brothers put three men, Jean-Francois, Jean-Baptiste, and Gerard de Villette, in the air. Their balloon was on a tether for safety, but it rose, it floated, and it flew. Humanity was in the sky. The following month, the tether was removed, and on November the 21st, Francois Laurent joined De Rossier, and the two successfully completed the first free flight of any human beings in recorded history. The Montgolfier brothers' invention was a sensation, and copycats soon followed. The revolutionary potential of hot air balloons captivated the French, and while it was a popular pastime for the wealthy, there were clear limitations. The baskets couldn't carry much weight, the balloons were fragile, and once you went up, you didn't have any control over where you went or where you came down. In 1785, French inventor Jean-Pierre Blanchard took the first evolutionary step toward giving humanity control in the air. He combined a hydrogen-powered balloon with a hand-powered propeller. Now, with a lot of exhausting effort and a favorable wind, a balloon passenger could exercise a little control over their flight. To really put his invention to the test, Blanchard flew this rickety contraption all the way across the English Channel. This was the first branch in the development of flight which led to the airship, that desire for control but manual propellers simply were limited in power. Not to mention the people of France soon had something else occupying their time, the French Revolution and soon after the Napoleonic Wars. And if the balloon was inspiring to the imagination of the public on the battlefield, it immediately expanded an army's power. Remember, this was a time without satellites, without airplanes, without even radios. The power to send scouts into the air to observe enemy armies over a mile of terrain upended centuries of military strategy. The French used military balloons in engagements like the Battle of Florius in 1794 and the Siege of Menez in 1805. 
1795. A French painter named Jean-Baptiste Munez commemorated the Battle of Florius, and in the background of his painting, a dark balloon looms over the battlefield on the French side. The painting, depicting the moment that warfare took to the sky, hangs today in the Gallery of Battles at the Palace of Versailles. Before there was such a thing as science fiction, there were authors that dabbled in what was called speculative fiction, the telling of stories that extrapolated wild scenarios from new technologies and current events. Multiple stories at this time imagined the terrifying sight of a French army under Napoleon's power invading Britain, leading a fleet of hot air balloons. But balloons still faced the same problems Blanchard had had in crossing the English Channel. You couldn't carry much, you had almost no power, and if the weather didn't cooperate, you could end up dead. In order for flying to progress, science had to make a few new leaps. But there's an incident in 1808 that I think perfectly captures both the grip that balloons had on the popular imagination as well as their hazardous limitations. It's the story of what was likely the first ever duel fought in hot air balloons. Two gentlemen, the story goes, were competing for the affections of a young dancer from the Paris Opera, and they decided to settle their dispute in the skies. Each, carrying a blunderbuss and accompanied by a second, ascended in balloons. The first one fired and missed. The other gentleman decided not to aim at his rival. Instead, he aimed at the rival's balloon. His shot punctured it, and his rival, along with the rival's poor second, plummeted to their deaths. History doesn't record what the young dancer thought of all of this. It was a half a century before the next breakthrough that made airships possible. We're still in France, only now we're with a 27-year-old engineer named Henri Gaffard. It's 1852, and Gaffard has built an envelope measuring 300 cubic meters, enormous for the time, and filled it with hydrogen gas. Only he's added something new to the equation, a steam engine. Finally, we have more than just human muscle in the air. With the steam engine working, Gaffard can fly his invention at a top speed of 6 miles per hour. He gives it a simple name, the French word meaning directable. He calls it dirigible. While the dirigible is a radical advance on the simple balloon, it too has only so many uses. Steam would not be enough. For the power it needed, we need to leave France and go next door to Germany. Today, most of the world's cars are powered by the same technology, the internal combustion engine. Its basic design dates all the way back to the revolutionary four-stroke engine created by German inventors Nicholas Otto and Eugen Langdon in 1876. Remarkably, Nicholas Otto didn't even think it was useful for transportation. He disagreed about it so vehemently with his factory manager that the manager quit to found his own company. That manager was named Gottlieb Daimler, and the company he founded still exists today as Daimler AG, the makers of the Mercedes-Benz and the world's oldest automobile company. But back to the internal combustion engine, which was lighter, more efficient, and much more powerful than a steam engine. It was inevitable that someone would see what these new engines could do to power humanity through the skies. And in 1898, the Brazilian inventor Alberto Santos Dumont 
constructed the world's first true gasoline-powered airship. At the time he was doing this, the Wright brothers in America were still developing kites, and before they could create their pioneering airplane and fly it at Kitty Hawk, the airship took a dramatic leap forward in size and power and in global fame, all thanks to a man who'd been dreaming of them and building plans for them for decades. It's time to meet the one and only Count Ferdinand Adolf Heinrich August Graf von Zeppelin. Part 2 There's a reason why Zeppelin's name became literally synonymous with airships, so let's dig into his story. Ferdinand von Zeppelin was born July 8th of 1838 in the Kingdom of Württemberg, on today's maps an area in southern Germany near the border with Switzerland. He attended a military academy near Stuttgart, becoming an officer in the army of Württemberg in 1858. Then he took leave from the military to study science and engineering at a nearby university. It's this combination of a soldier's eye and a scientist's schooling that makes von Zeppelin the ideal candidate to help the airship continue its evolution. The question is, when did he get his first inspiration and when did he have his first flight? As is common for famous historical figures, many people want to claim their city, street, or even building as the source of inspiration for that person's world-changing work. And this is no less true for Zeppelin, as many wanted to claim to be the location of his first balloon ride. For example, in the state of Virginia in the United States, the Newport News Daily Press on May 30th of 1965 reported on the construction of an airport runway, which they claimed was being built over the site of von Zeppelin's first balloon ride. He was in America, the article says, in 1862, studying modern battlefield tactics up close during the Civil War. But let's explore this a little further. We do know that von Zeppelin visited America during the Civil War, and we also know that balloons were in use. From 1861 to 1863, the Union Army had an official balloon corps, using balloons as observation platforms, much the way Napoleon had. An old coal barge was converted into a Union naval vessel, the USS Washington Park Custis, a Union balloon could be anchored to it and steered to where it was needed. The pilots were called aeronauts, but they were not commissioned as soldiers, and if captured, they would not be prisoners of war, but executed as enemy spies. Now, the Confederate Army hoped to do the same, and there are even references here and there to a Confederate dream of bombing Union cities from a great army of balloons, like those in the fictional stories about Napoleon. But the Confederacy was so short of the necessary materials that the only balloons that we know they successfully completed were made out of silk dresses. Now, as to that story in the Newport News, it claims that Zeppelin, quote, received permission from Union officers to make the ascent, and while in the air, he came under fire from Confederate troops, end quote. Then... Needing to abandon the balloon, he had to, quote, slide down a restraining cable and burn the flesh from his hands during this emergency descent, an injury which prevented him from making another ascent, but somehow left him with a lifelong interest in balloons, end quote. 
This article offered no evidence to support this action movie scenario, but we do know that it got one key fact wrong. Von Zeppelin's visit to Virginia was in the summer of 1863, not 1862, and by then, the Union Army Balloon Corps had all but ceased operations. So, we may just have to chalk this up to local storytelling. Fake news, it seems, is not just a new concept. The answer to this mystery, as it happens, comes from Von Zeppelin himself. We do know he arrived in New York on May 6th of 1863 and stayed in Philadelphia for a few days and then continued to Washington, D.C. His military pass to observe Union forces was apparently arranged personally by President Lincoln after he met the young officer. Von Zeppelin joined up with the Army of the Potomac in a camp near Falmouth, Virginia. He spoke very little English, and his ornate European uniform clashed with the simpler dress of Union soldiers. As a non-combatant, von Zeppelin was barred from taking part in any fighting, but he did observe several engagements. And on June 20th, he joined a cavalry detachment carrying messages to General Pleasanton. He saw early skirmishes around Fredericksburg, but by the time of the Battle of Gettysburg in early July, he'd already returned to New York. There, he boarded a train and headed for the western frontier. Today, this is what we call Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. He explored this rapidly developing territory for two months, several weeks of them in a canoe. Then, on August 17th of 1863, he checked into the opulent St. Paul International Hotel. And, according to a letter to his father, it was here, not a Civil War battlefield, that von Zeppelin flew for the first time. Across the street from the hotel, a German-born traveling balloonist named John Steiner was offering rides $5 a passenger. That's about $105 today, so not a joyride that just anybody could afford. But on August 19th, von Zeppelin bought his ticket, and afterward he wrote to his father, quote, Just now I ascended with Professor Steiner, the famous aeronaut, to an altitude of six or 700 feet, end quote. He went on to describe his excitement about the military potential of balloons, and in interviews later in life, von Zeppelin confirmed, while I was above St. Paul, I had my first idea of aerial navigation strongly impressed upon me, and it was there that the first idea of my Zeppelins came to me, end quote. It would take a long time for his vision to become a reality. Over 10 years later, entries from his diary still show him developing designs for massive airships. Along the way, he's attending lectures and watching the progress and inventions of others. A designer named Heinrich von Steffen presented a new innovation, a large, rigidly framed outer envelope containing a number of separate gas bags inside. But it wasn't until von Zeppelin's forced retirement from the military in the early 1890s, a full 30 years from his balloon ride in St. Paul, Minnesota, that he could devote his time, his passion, and his considerable monetary resources to making the powered airships that would eventually bear his name. Now, over those 30 years, he'd studied every development in the field, and he knew the necessary formula for success efficient fuel and lightweight materials. But he also recognized that he had to have the capacity to test and fail, 
often as it took to find a reliable design. He took von Steffen's innovation of a rigid frame and made his semi-rigid, a lightweight aluminum skeleton combined with durable fabric. This would better protect the dangerous gas envelopes inside from wind and weather. And with two gasoline-fueled engines, a pitch elevator, a forward and aft rudder, von Zeppelin's design was a stunning leap forward in capability and sophistication. Part 3. The German military has a history of keeping things simple in naming equipment, and von Zeppelin had picked up this habit. His groundbreaking, game-changing dirigible, taking a year and a half to build, measuring a record-smashing 420 feet long and 38 feet in diameter, he simply named the Zeppelin LZ-1. And on July 2nd, 1900, almost 37 years after that balloon ride in Minnesota, the LZ-1 had its inaugural flight, carrying five passengers four miles in just 17 minutes. An emergency engine failure cut the journey short, but the flight could hardly be called a failure. It was the dawn of a new era, 150 years of imagination and labor by geniuses from many nations, all trying to create a controllable, powerful aircraft from the principles of a balloon had produced the Zeppelin. Von Zeppelin successfully flew the LZ-1 two more times until he had to halt and secure more funding. Other inventors were pushing ahead on their own designs, but it was dangerous work. In 1902, a Brazilian inventor named Marajau, along with his mechanic, died when their dirigible exploded over Paris. The pioneering silent filmmaker George Méliès recreated this disaster with special effects for a newsreel. But Von Zeppelin would not be denied. He persuaded the King of Württemberg not just to hold a national lottery for funds, but to mortgage his own wife's estates as well. The Count put everything he had back into the work, and by April of 1905, he produced his follow-up. It was called, naturally, the LZ-2. Unfortunately, it managed only one flight before severe wind crippled it. But von Zeppelin was undaunted, and the LZ-3 had its first flight on October 9th of 1906. It broke all previous airship speed records by reaching 36 miles per hour. But von Zeppelin knew that speed alone wouldn't achieve the possibilities he dreamed of for his airships. The next challenge would be to give his Zeppelins the power to transport large numbers of people over great distances. And the LZ-3 needed to make room for the LZ-4. The LZ-4 was made up of 17 individual gas bags with a central crew cabin underneath. A ladder ran up the side to take you to an observation platform on top so you could navigate by the stars. It also required a more effective steering mechanism than its predecessors, and the finned rudder on its stern became an iconic element of airship design for decades to come. The LZ-4 had its maiden voyage on June 20th, 1908. It was a short hop of 18 minutes, but it was just the precursor to voyages that would destroy any doubts about the range of the Zeppelin. On July 1st, the LZ-4 completed a staggering 12-hour flight, crossing over from Germany into Switzerland and returning again. The public and the German government were astounded, and von Zeppelin decided to push the boundaries even further. 
he announced that the LZ-4 would complete a full 24-hour flight. After a few false starts, the attempt began at 6.22 a.m. on August 4th. Crowds of people gathered along the flight path and looked to the skies to watch this astonishing invention floating through the heavens. Now, before I tell you about the all-important outcome of the LZ-4's 24-hour flight, I want to take a moment and think about the people witnessing this event. They knew what they were seeing in the skies, and perhaps we could call these airships identified flying objects. You might recall earlier in this episode, I told you about the early UFO sightings by Alexander the Great over 2,000 years ago. But there's a fascinating and not entirely solved era of UFO sightings that coincides with the exact time period we're discussing, the era of the Zeppelin. But while one might seem to explain the other, these sightings were taking place in areas where there were no airships at all. In November of 1896, a newspaper in Sacramento, California ran an article about a reported sighting of a lighted shape moving through the sky at about a thousand feet of elevation. One witness swore he heard voices coming from the craft and saw the shapes of two men operating it from underneath with pedals. Just two days later, a newspaper in nearby Stockton told of a man's claim that he had spotted a strange metallic craft on the ground and that three tall slender beings who were, quote, emitting a strange warbling noise, end quote, attempted to force him aboard their ship. Sightings like these, sometimes referred to as the cigar-shaped craft, became a sensation in America with thousands of sightings reported over the next two years. Speculation reached such a fevered pitch that even the inventor Thomas Edison felt pressured into publishing a declaration that he had no high-tech secret project roaming the skies. Now, as I said, this was from 1896 to 1897, but von Zeppelin didn't finish his first airship until 1900, and it was only flying in Europe. So what was it that people were seeing in the skies of America? Many of the sightings have been explained by natural phenomenon, but the fact that there was such an accelerating trend of sightings, just as both the airplane and the Zeppelin were becoming viable, seems like one of those uncanny moments where humanity's imagination was syncing up with scientific progress. While we won't answer this today, I have a fascinating case of a UFO sighting that I'll cover later in this season of My Dark Path. Now, back to the LZ-4 and its attempt to stay aloft for 24 hours. It turns out that it has a tragic end, but a tragedy that turned into a triumph. Engine difficulties forced the airship to land for repairs in the German city of Echterding, and there, for reasons we don't fully know, the airship's gas bags exploded into flames. The primary theory is that a gust of wind pulled it from its moorings, and a crew member tried to steer it back to the ground. And at that moment, some of the gas bags were torn on trees, with the rubberized fabric creating static discharge and igniting the hydrogen. The LZ-4 was gone and in front of the watching eyes of two nations, but rather than being the end of von Zeppelin's dream, it only elevated his work and the technology of the airship to new heights. German investors, businesses, and even individual families poured money into Zeppelin's company, more than $30 million by today's currency, and Germany collected on the investment it had made in him. The LZ-5 would be the first airship officially accepted into military service. 
Meanwhile, a professional airline, the German Airship Travel Corporation, started transporting passengers by Zeppelin in June of 1910. Before the outbreak of the First World War, some 37,000 passengers were carried on over 1,600 flights with a 100% safety record. Soon, construction of Zeppelin-style semi-rigid airships was happening in France, Britain, Spain, Italy, America, and more. The idea was more popular than ever. In 1908, legendary sci-fi author H.G. Wells wrote a book called The War in the Air, in which a mad German conqueror invades America by crossing the Atlantic with a fleet of airships. One of them even hovers over New York City, like a flying saucer did in the movie Independence Day. But back in the real world, an American explorer, Walter Wellman, was the first to attempt crossing the Atlantic Ocean. His airship, the America departed Atlantic City on October 10th of 1910 and flew for 40 hours until an engine failure left it adrift in the skies. Wellman made history, but not in the way that he'd planned. He ended up placing the very first air-to-sea radio distress call and successfully evacuated the crew of the America to a British steamship. But no one gave up on the idea of crossing the Atlantic in the air. It promised a revolution in travel. If you needed to cross an ocean, you could book passage on a ship, but ships were slow and the oceans were dangerous. The sinking of the Titanic in 1912 was enough to give one pause. But as the world went to war, ocean travel had the potential to become even more deadly. Travelers were looking to the skies, but the war was already there. Part four. The First World War is considered to be the first conflict defined by the use of modern technology. This is especially true when it comes to military aircraft. Fighters, bombers, and scout planes all had their origins in that terrible conflict. Airships had their place as well. At the beginning of the war, they could fly high above the range of any fighters or anti-air guns and drop bombs at will. While bombing from a Zeppelin was wildly inaccurate, it was a potent psychological weapon, and Germany took full advantage while they could. But as the Allies developed better fighter aircraft, explosive ammunition, and improved their night fighting tactics, German usage of Zeppelins as warships dwindled, with their last raid taking place in March of 1918. Before that happened, though, Zeppelin LZ-104, nicknamed the Africa Ship, set a military record that still stands today, staying in the air for 95 consecutive hours in a supply run to German East Africa that came to an unexpected end. That story is worth a My Dark Path episode all by itself, and we'll bring it to you in the next season. Sadly, it was during the war that the Zeppelins lost their namesake, the man who'd shepherded them from experimental vision to thriving reality. Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin passed away in March of 1917. After World War I, airships and airplanes seemed locked in a battle for which would be more useful to humankind in peacetime. The first transatlantic flight was completed by airplane on June 15th of 1919, but an airship from the British Royal Air Force completed the crossing just three weeks later, and it carried paying passengers. Airplanes could only cross the ocean at this time by staying small, but with an airship, members of the public could fly thousands of miles, 
and they could do it in style. For a while, German Zeppelins were out of the picture. The Treaty of Versailles, which ended the First World War, actually forbid Germany from constructing airships. It was only the persistence of one man that kept the Zeppelin story from ending right there. His name is Hugo Eckner. Eckner started his career as an author and journalist. He covered the flights of the original Zeppelins, the LZ-1 and LZ-2. Although he praised von Zeppelin's ambitions and genius, he was ruthless in criticizing the shortcomings and limitations of these early designs. Von Zeppelin's response was an unusual one. He offered Eckner a job. This may be an early example of, quote, learning to code. Eckner became a publicist for his company, immersing himself in airship knowledge. He even studied the process of flying them and earned his airship pilot's license in 1911. Eckner inherited the company from von Zeppelin, but his primary product was legally prohibited. So he came up with an ingenious solution. Germany owed reparations to the countries it had fought against in the war, including the United States. But its economy was in shambles, and Eckner therefore proposed building a Zeppelin for the United States Navy, which would help Germany pay its debts as well as loosen the ban. The two governments accepted his proposal, and LZ-126 was built and christened the USS Los Angeles. In 1924, Eckner personally captained the ship across the Atlantic to deliver it to the United States. Now, Eckner was determined to bring the Zeppelin back to prominence, not as a weapon of war, but as an icon of adventure and luxury. He solicited investments from all over the world. William Randolph Hearst even put money in. And his next Zeppelin, the LZ-127, was designed from the start to make an overwhelming impression. It was 776 feet long, the largest possible ship that could still fit in the company's hangar. Running on a unique fuel called Blaugas, which was very similar to propane, it could fly at an astonishing 73 miles per hour. The interior was built to attract a high-class clientele with sleeper cabins, a main sitting room with viewing windows, and art deco furniture, as well as a galley that could make three hot meals a day. Pilots were even instructed not to pitch the craft more than five degrees up or down except in an emergency, so as not to disturb the wine bottles. The LZ-127, rechristened the Graf Zeppelin, was an ocean liner in the sky, faster than the leading ships of the day. Eckner, not just a former publicist, but holding a doctorate in psychology, created a worldwide atmosphere of Zeppelin fever. He piloted the Zeppelin himself on its first transatlantic flight in 1928, and survived a terrifying storm which tore off the covering of the tail fin. Eckner's own son, Newt, ventured out onto the fin with a rigging team to repair it mid-flight. The airship successfully reached America, flight time 111 hours. Then, in 1929, the Graf Zeppelin took off from Lakehurst, New Jersey on an attempt to fly all the way around the world. The Hearst Media Empire helped underwrite the voyage. Passenger tickets sold for nearly $50,000 in today's currency. Eckner also rented out space aboard for another lucrative service, carrying mail. People would pay handsomely just to send a commemorative postcard aboard this miraculous ship. 
The Graf Zeppelin's journey was every bit the global sensation Eckner had envisioned. Crowds greeted it as it stopped at major cities. And in just 21 days, 5 hours and 31 minutes after it took off, it landed right back where it started in Lakehurst, New Jersey. It was the fastest trip around the world. Graf Zeppelin could reach seemingly anywhere. It even rendezvoused with a Soviet icebreaker just 500 miles from the North Pole. A future of world travel by airship lay ahead. When the Empire State Building was constructed in 1930 and 1931, its rooftop spire was built in the hopes that zeppelins from across the world would dock there, dominating the city sky just as they had in H.G. Wells' book. But while the Zeppelin was one of the most visible and beloved examples of German ingenuity, the company was falling out of favor with its country. Eckner was vocally opposed to the rise of the Nazi party, and given his heroic status with the public, he was even encouraged to run for president in 1932 against Hitler. He chose not to run, instead supporting the incumbent, President Paul von Hindenburg. Von Hindenburg won the election and blocked an attempt by the Nazis to arrest Eckner in 1933, but his power was already waning. In a doomed effort to unify his country, he appointed Hitler chancellor, and he would be dead just a year later, leaving the Nazis to rule unchecked. The new German government seized control of Eckner's company and began to overrule safety procedures in the interest of making flights that had the greatest propaganda value. For a while, they even banned newspapers from mentioning Eckner's name. While under his leadership, Zeppelins had carried passengers over one million air miles without a single serious injury. But now, everything was changing. Part 5 When we remember the Hindenburg airship, we remember the flames. That raging storm of fire consumed the great vessel in just 35 seconds. To this day, we don't know for certain what ignited the flames. Some have even dramatically suggested sabotage. But the dominant theory is the same cause which doomed the LZ-4, static discharge. The reason it was so vulnerable to fire was that it was lifted by hydrogen, the lightest, most plentiful gas in the world. If it had used helium, it likely would have landed safely and zeppelins may have continued to thrive as an alternative to airplane for many years. Helium, though, was controlled in a near monopoly by the United States. Breakthroughs in capturing helium from natural gas meant that America was creating nearly 90% of the world's supply, and in the tumultuous interwar years, they had banned the export of it. The LZ-129, christened the Hindenburg in honor of the late president, was designed for helium, but when it launched in 1936, it was lifted by the affordable but extremely flammable hydrogen gas. The Hindenburg continued pushing the boundaries of luxury. For a while, its lounge even contained a specially designed baby grand piano. While every pound counts in air travel, this piano was made mostly of aluminum alloy and weighed only 400 pounds. The airship, despite the dangers of hydrogen, even had a smoking lounge. To access it, you had to pass through an airlock to get into this pressurized chamber, and you could only smoke the cigarettes and cigars sold on board. The Hindenburg made 63 successful flights. 
and along with its sibling, the Graf Zeppelin, was the pride of Germany. When heavyweight boxer Max Schmeling won the title by knocking out Joe Lewis, his triumphant flight home was on the Hindenburg. But it's the tragedy of May 6, 1937, that we remember today. When the Hindenburg left Frankfurt, Germany on May 3rd, it was a seasoned, well-maintained craft, the pinnacle of decades' worth of design improvements and field testing. Its captain, Max Pruss, was a veteran airship pilot who had crossed the Atlantic 171 times. And Eckner's own longtime right-hand man, Ernst Lehmann, was aboard as a senior observing officer. At 7.21 p.m., it arrived at Lakehurst, New Jersey. Landing lines were tossed out to be caught by the ground crew to tie the ship down. And then, four minutes later, it exploded. The legendary commentary by Herbert Morrison was not broadcast live. He was simply recording a report for radio station WSL in Chicago. Listeners that evening were the first to experience his narration of that horrifying event. Later, newsreel film shot of the event was synced up to his commentary, and moviegoers across the nation were able to see and experience the disaster on the big screen. When George Melies made his short film about the 1902 dirigible explosion in Paris, he needed special effects. But this was the disaster itself, captured by mass media with the visceral power few people had ever experienced. The power of those seconds of film and audio wiped away all the other stories about the Hindenburg and about airships in general. The fact that 61 of the 97 people aboard survived didn't register. The heroism of Captain Pruss, who continued to guide the burning ship toward the ground and then carried his own radio operator out of the wreckage while he himself was scarred for life by the flames, was forgotten. This was not even the greatest loss of life in the history of airships, and it paled in comparison with the death toll of the Titanic. But the global shock wrought by that footage became the story. The Graf Zeppelin was in the midst of its own transatlantic voyage when the news arrived of the Hindenburg's destruction. It landed safely in Brazil one day later. This would be the last overseas commercial flight of any airship. Later, the Nazis melted down its airframe to build military aircraft. What is the feeling of wonder? Maybe it's the sensation we experience from something that seems both real and impossible. A sight which defies reason, in the right moment, can flood us with the joy of knowing our world has become a little bigger, a little more magical. What was going through the heads of the hundreds of thousands gathered to see the Graf Zeppelin soar over Tokyo? What was the feeling in the hearts of the people in Zurich who watched the future loom in the skies, outfoxing even the laws of nature? I think there was wonder, but I also think the flip side of wonder is terror. When things we cannot comprehend are a threat, or even seem like it, the terror can echo forever. It only took a moment, a short 35 seconds over Lakehurst, New Jersey. To science, to the military, airships were a useful machine with a lot of upside. To the public, they were no longer a sight of wonder. After 35 seconds of fire, the feeling of wonder had flipped to its dark twin, terror. 
Despite the public's sudden shift in confidence, airships were active on both sides in the Second World War. With their plentiful supply of helium, the American Navy built over 100 blimps. Two of them actually served as flying aircraft carriers, with hangars that could carry, launch, and land up to five small fighters. The so-called K-class patrol blimps were one of the greatest tools available for locating and tracking enemy submarines. They could accompany patrols and convoys, logging tens of thousands of flights. Through the entire war, only one convoy ship was ever sunk by a submarine while a K-class blimp was watching over. And only one blimp was ever shot down, blimp K-74. It was hit by one of the very submarines it was hunting. All of the crew survived, except one. He was eaten by a shark. And what comes after? Count von Zeppelin's LZ-1 launched the year of 1900, and airships seemed like they would be there every step of the 20th century as humans invented, discovered, and explored the globe. Instead, after World War II, the story felt effectively done. Goodyear, which had helped build the K-class blimps in World War II, kept building airships. Their blue and gold fleet today is iconic for carrying their corporate logo through the skies over sporting events. But it seems so disconnected from the airship story. Its appearance is like a ritual that we've forgotten the origins of. But there are signs that the story isn't quite as over as we may think. In 1993, Zeppelin, the very company the Count had founded and then handed to Hugo Eckner before it was seized by the Nazis, was revived from its dormant assets. Taking the records and designs left behind and applying modern materials and avionics, they've built what they call the Zeppelin NT, or New Technology. Zeppelin NTs are still launching today and are being used for flight training, advertising, surveying, and yes, even carrying tourists. Meanwhile, a UK company called Hybrid Air Vehicles has created what's called the Airlander 10. It's a semi-rigid helium airship used to carry tons of cargoes to places where there are no airport runways. The next generation airship on their drawing board, the Airlander 50, could fit up to 200 passengers. So maybe there's another chapter yet to the Zeppelin story. Maybe, slowly but surely, that sense of wonder can be reborn. It's odd, really, that a topic that seems so mundane so far in the past could have so many threads. But at that moment when I first saw the Gulliver airship in Prague, the topic of airships started to unfold in my mind and imagination. My team and I continued to research the topic. Now that we've got a foundation in their history, we're already at work on three more episodes. Did you know that the United States was subject to multiple balloon attacks during World War II? I've already visited the site just outside of Thermopolis, Wyoming, where the first Japanese Fugo balloon attack occurred on the United States. This topic is a grand slam. Elusive military technology, an abandoned mining town, airships, and World War II history. Also, I'm preparing a trip to study and explore the history of the German Africa ship in its 95-hour mission. And another, the lost airship Italia as it attempted to get to the North Pole. So there's so much more to come on this fascinating technology and its history in future episodes of My Dark Path.
Thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host. Please take a moment and give My Dark Path a five-star rating wherever you're listening. I want to thank Alex Bagasy for contributing research to this episode and to our story editor, Nicholas Thurkettle, for helping me put it all together. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, you can get a framed copy of this photo of the airship over Zurich. I'm giving one away to the first 20 people who leave a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Just send an email to explore at mydarkpath.com with a picture of the review, and I'll arrange to get you your very own framed airship picture. Plus, be sure to register on www.mydarkpath.com. As I mentioned, every two weeks I'll do drawings and ship out fascinating books and other materials from my own cabinet of curiosities. And if you love these topics, you might be interested in my novels as well. You can find all of them on Amazon and other online booksellers. They're called Seen by Moonlight, A Sickness in Time, and most recently, Arcade. Again, thanks for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me, your host, M.F. Thomas. Until next time, good night. Washington Park Custis. USS Washington Park Custis.